Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Episode 110 of The Morning After on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I am your host, Jesse Kiefer. Sari Kamen, my lovely co-host, is jet-setting away in Europe, and I can't say that I uh, am jealous. No, I'm absolutely 100% jealous. Um, I hope she's having a fantastic time. I know she's going to Paris, then to Berlin, and then all over Spain. Uh, and I can't wait to uh, to hear from her. I'm sure she's going to have a ton of stories about her trip to Europe. Um, so here I am, all on my lonesome, at Roberta's on Father's Day. <laughs> but I'm really not alone. I definitely have some fantastic guests on the show today. Um, we're going to be talking wine in California. Uh, I have two different sides of the of the story. I have a, uh, a producer in Sonoma Coast, Ross Cobb of Cobb Wines. He focuses on single vineyard um, Pinot Noir. And then I also have someone on the distribution side, Miss Amy Atwood of Amy Atwood Selections. She's a wine importer, wholesaler, and online retailer. So we're going to talk to Ross after the break, but right now, let's get right into it. Amy Atwood, are you there? I'm here, Jesse. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, welcome to the morning after. Um, I, You and I were lucky enough to, to meet each other when we were in France. We were in the Loire Valley, and um, neither of us speak French. <laughs> and we just walked around to the natural wine tastings, and uh, I, I loved your forward attitude towards the producers, because I'd be like, can I please taste? And you'd be like, yeah, we'll have the first one. <laughs> Yeah, it's almost frightening that I don't let my lack of language skills uh, hold me back from trying to hold a conversation. <laughs> no, it was amazing. It was amazing. And uh, you really you really helped my confidence because I'm one of those people who, if I cannot say every single word in a language, I'm like, I'm like mute. <laughs> I can't like, oh. um, the desire to communicate must not be as strong in me. So, Amy, um, I guess I, I want to jump into it. You're a wine distributor. Um, how did you how did you get involved in wine initially? Well, I was living down in Australia at the time, actually, between Sydney and Melbourne. And I mean, I I started out in this industry bartending behind a bar at restaurants and nightclubs, etc. And that's where I kind of discovered my love of wine mm-hmm. while I was doing that. So then the owner allowed me to take over the beverage program of several different clubs and restaurants, and uh, it was, you know, I was just kind of dropped into the middle of it not knowing anything, um, but knew that I loved wine, and I loved wine because there's a story behind every wine, and of course, it's delicious. Um, so I got into it that way and started out actually like uh, on the purchasing side of being a beverage director at restaurants. Uh, and then when I moved back to the United States, uh, I got into the wholesale side because I was tired of uh, working nights, which oh, I was yeah. doing for a, for a long time. I was tired of getting home at like 3 a.m. Um, or in Australia, more like 8 a.m. Oh, yikes. Uh, so, 
Yeah, so I uh, I got into the the wholesale side and worked for some other wholesalers uh, and and importers as well mm-hmm. uh, between both Texas and California. And I actually was doing national sales, so I traveled all over the U.S. I was in New York a lot, actually, um, and everywhere else. And then I I worked for basically worked for other people for about ten years, uh, and then about. Five years ago, I started my own company here, here in California. So you're in, you're based in Los Angeles. What is uh, what does it mean to be to be a wine distributor? What I mean, I, I imagine people can understand a winemaker, but I think that there are more details within within the wine industry. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'm based in Los Angeles, but my company sells all over California. So I've got sales reps in San Francisco and another one down here in Southern California with me. Um, and what that essentially means is, as a distributor, is that I'm selling to wine retail shops and also to restaurants. Uh, but I'm also an importer, so I do some of my own direct imports um, from various countries around the world. And then I also have my own California wine label called Eno, so mm-hmm. I also sell that as well. So you know you're not too busy or anything. <laughs> I'm not too busy. I'm actually doing. I'm actually, this is the glamorous life of being in the wine world. Even though we did just go on that amazing trip to the Loire Valley and eat and drink ourselves silly for a week, but like today I'm working on QuickBooks accounting. <laughs> so, <laughs> There's uh, there's there's always a balance to the glamour. Yeah, I mean, speaking of glamour, I think that I mean, oh, you've started your own company, but you have to you have to sell your own wine. You can't just import delicious wine and then be like, okay, now everyone, you know, all all you people just buy it. You actually have to go out onto the street and rep your wine. Can you give me like a day in the life of a wine rep? Because I think it's one of the hardest jobs there is. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because, uh, yeah, I've been on, on the many sides of this, uh, of the wine business. I've worked in restaurants, I've worked in retail, um, I've done everything except for actually be in the winery day to day making wine myself. And I think it's always a shock even to the winemakers when they first get into the business that they realize that they thought making wine was hard, but then they realize actually selling your wine is even harder because there's a, a lot of competition out there. Um, and also, at the end of the day, uh, the wine shop buyer or the sommelier at the restaurant, um, they have to not only like your wine, but the reality is they also have to have a relationship with you, a business relationship, because mm-hmm. um, that's, that's really who they're doing business with. So, I mean, for me, it's a little bit different because I'm the owner of the company, so I actually divide my time between doing, you know, management, purchasing wines. From, from winemakers and, and other importers. Um, and, and then I'll do that usually in the morning. So I'll, I'll order wine and speak to people and talk to winemakers. Uh, and then in the afternoons, I go out and I meet with my, with my clients, with restaurants and retailers, and we, we taste wines and talk about what they need and what they want. And um, hopefully if it goes really well, they, they buy some wine from me <laughs> at the end of that. So as a uh, as a distributor and an importer of of wine, what are you looking for to bring in and add to your portfolio? What what kind of wine? Well, the reason I even started my company five years ago is I realized I had been selling wine for a while and, and actually did understand the business and knew how to successfully sell wine. But the next jump I wanted to make was to sell wines that I was really passionate about and really loved and wanted, most importantly 
wines that I wanted to drink at the end of the day for dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, so really this company was just to like support my wine drinking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, you know, what's important to me is um, the wines that I enjoy are usually made by some of the smaller producers who have made very small quantities. Uh, the vast majority of them, especially the winemakers I'm working for, uh, that I'm working with from Europe, are actually living on and farming their own small vineyards. Mm-hmm. Um, here in California, it's a little bit different just because it's so much more expensive to get land. So many of my winemakers here, even though they remain quite small and hands-on, they do, um, you know, they have to lease vineyards, et cetera, because they're not, they don't have enough money to buy mm-hmm. the vineyards. Um, but definitely wines... Um, that are more refreshing, a little bit higher in acid, don't have as much big, jammy, kind of overripe fruit or too much new oak barrels on them, etc. Those are the wines that really get me excited. And and I also, I have to be excited about the winemaker and the person that I'm actually interacting with. So for me, it's about, first of all, I have to like the wine, and then I have to like the way the wine is made. I want it to be made in a thoughtful, conscientious manner. Uh, but then I also have to have some level of respect and uh, attachment with the actual winemaker. Uh, and if all of those things sink, then I also feel like the wine itself will be more successful once I'm out there selling it. So in specifically in, in California right now, there's been such a... I mean, I know it's been happening for a while, but... I think all of us in in New York who are into natural wine and want to support U.S. wine, I think we're really excited to see the stuff that's coming out of out of California right now. Um, specifically, wines that are, like you said, you know, um, hand harvested, very hands on. Um, I know a lot of your wines are low sulfur or no sulfur, kind of leaning towards the natural side. Um, you know, is that is that part of the reason you're in California? Is for for those exciting things? Well, I'm in California because after Australia, I didn't know if I could live anywhere else in the U.S. because California is so beautiful and the, the ocean and the vineyards. But back to your point, you know, it's interesting because I've always, for the last, like, 15 years, been such a Europhile when it comes to wine and probably more specifically a Francophile. I really love French wines, um, and I still drink a lot of French wines. But it's funny because, you know, I was talking to a, a colleague of mine, a wine shop buyer, here in L.A. not long ago, and and we were both saying that right now, today, the most exciting wine region in the world to me is definitely California. And that's because there has been such a sea change in how wines are made here. There's so many up-and-coming, exciting winemakers and winery projects that actually we're, we're just starting to kind of show their faces about five years ago when I started my company, um, I only represent a handful of California winemakers, people like Donkey and Goat and Dirty and Rowdy and La Clarine and Jay Bricks. And these are all very small producers making just amazingly beautiful, elegant, like just gluggable wine. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they are a little bit lower in alcohol and they are a little bit higher in acid. And yeah, they, they're naturally fermented, so they're not inoculating with yeast. Um, they're the wines, and it was the same, it was the same process for these winemakers 
a lot of them that I've met and spoken to said, you know, they just got tired of making wines that they didn't even want to drink at the end of the day um, because they were they were so big and oaky and heavy and they just weren't refreshing. And now in California, we have, I mean, I all the time now I will actually turn to a California wine to drink with my own dinner, which which I wouldn't have done like eight or ten years ago, to be honest. Do you think, um, do you think that that, uh, you know, the, the change in, in the wine scene and the winemaking scene in California is also adding to the wine scene in, in L.A. Because L.A. is also a buzz these days. I mean, I, I, I know several people who are kind of packing up and moving to L.A., trying to open restaurants. Um, and there you are also selling natural wine in L.A. I mean, I guess what have you seen change? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely been... I mean, I think it's all been hand in hand. I mean, I think, I think some of the winemakers... Well, the young winemakers came into this wanting to make lighter, more interesting wines. Some of the older winemakers have changed the way they made wine because there was pushback from sommeliers, both in L.A. and San Francisco, saying this is the style of wine we're looking for. Um, and I think that's happened in L.A. as well. Yeah, there's been a lot of back and forth between San Francisco. Obviously, there's a, a tremendous amount of creative um, and cultural back and forth between New York and Los Angeles. A lot of people go back and forth and, and divide their time between the coasts now. Um, and I think a couple other things about L.A. that have made it such a vibrant food and wine scene, especially in the last, like, two or three years, is that it's big, it's spread wide, and people can still afford financially to find a small space and, and start something really interesting without a lot of money, uh, which is harder to do in some other cities in the U.S. because it's just there's a financial barrier that can't be crossed. And, and here people can go to neighborhoods, like, say, downtown L.A., which is exploding right now, which is one of the most exciting places to eat or drink in the U.S. right now. And that's because it had been so abandoned and people could afford to get a little space there and start at something really cool without a lot of money. Um, what are some of your, your favorite spots in L.A. right now, restaurant and wine-wise? Yeah, and I was about to say, I mean, restaurant-wise, I was going to even mention Alma, which uh, is, you know, Bon Appetit picked them as the top new restaurant in the U.S. for 2013. And there's just this, a group of, you know, a young chef and another young woman named Ashley who is a partner and, and runs the operations. And, I mean, they started Alma, like, totally bootstrapping it, and now it's, like, on all the top restaurant lists in the U.S. And they immediately, from the minute they started doing a wine list, knew they wanted it to be a natural wine list because they wanted it to be, um, you know, something that was philosophically aligned with their menu. Mm-hmm. Um, a, lo- a lot of restaurants five years ago would open up and have this very thoughtful, conscientious menu, and then their wine list would be total commercial, like, long. Yeah. Um, and, there, and there was a disconnect. So Alba is definitely a hot one to try if you can get in. Um, Bestia, which is also downtown, amazing. Um, uh, actually, the Ace Hotel, which is opened up downtown L.A., has uh, is one of the best places to eat and drink, and they have a lot of natural wines on their list as well. Um, as far as wine shops, you've got Buzz Wines downtown. Um, you've got Domain LA in Hollywood as well. You've got Silver Lake Wine in, you know, in the Silver Lake area of LA. I mean, these are just a few of the shops that have uh, a really exciting set of 
uh, smaller producer wines. I just, I just love the idea of such a metropolitan city actually being affordable for people to create again. Because, you know, I've seen people open restaurants in New York and people close restaurants in New York. It's so hard here. And it's just great to know that 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 is existing on the other coast. Yeah, it definitely is. It's been really exciting to see the change that's happened in the last few years. So you're uh, you're not only distributing and importing wine, you're also making wine. Was there a challenge for you? I mean, I know the the making wine part is very is difficult, but like, you know, you go in thinking that you want to make wine this way. Did you did you kind of fight up against any of your any of your ideas initially? Yeah, I mean, so my my wine label is called Eno. That's O E N O, and I only sell it in uh, California and New York for the time being. So my my production levels are pretty low, and for me, making Eno is just kind of a natural extension of being in the wine business so long and seeing a need for something that I wasn't really finding, and that in this case was an affordable everyday California wine, which we have a lot of those from Europe. Um, but in California, the kind of more affordable everyday wines, I really didn't like them. I didn't enjoy drinking them, and I really didn't want to sell them. Um, so I met a winemaker, uh, Dan Fitzgerald, and, and his winemaking partner, John Harley, and I told them what I was looking for, which was, you know, I wanted Eno to be native fermentation. Um, so again, not inoculating with any laboratory yeast. I wanted it to be unfiltered and unfined. Um, and I, I wanted either no oak or neutral oak barrels. I wanted these to be really, like, refreshing, drinkable wines. And, um, no, they totally got me. I mean, that's how they make wine anyway, unless somebody tells them differently. So I, we spend a lot of time talking and meeting and tasting together. They very much understand um, my philosophy. Um, but I'm lucky because it's not just a philosophy. Eno is also a delicious wine, which for me is, 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 is just as important as to how it's made, is that it also has to be delicious, and we all have to really want to drink a lot of it. Um, so, no, I haven't had to, as far as that philosophy is making wine, we've always been um, on point with each other. Um, and it's been a huge success here in California, and it's starting to make some inroads in New York, too. So, um, no, for me, it's actually one of the most exciting things I'm working on right now is, is the Eno project. Well, that's it's delicious wine. I've definitely had it on my list, and I've seen it on lists in New York. So I wish you all the luck in that. Um, AmyAtwood.com is your website, correct? Yes, AmyAtwood.com, that's it. And before we wrap this up, my favorite thing to ask people uh, people in the beverage world who have been able to drink some of the finest wines and spirits. Uh, what is your favorite guilty pleasure beverage? I'd have to say, I mean, I, I have quite a few, I think. I drink a lot of beverages of all kinds. But, um, I mean, my favorite, like, hands down is, like, just a good old cheap rosé. As long as it's ice, as long as it's ice cold and it's like a summer day, I could drink cheap rosé all day. But dry, dry rosé, right? Yeah, dry rosé, of course. Yeah, it's always dry, and I definitely like it pale. But my point is, it really doesn't have to be, like, a really expensive or fancy dry rosé. Like, 
some of the really inexpensive ones, like throw that in the freezer for 20 minutes and it's delicious. Absolutely. Well, I'm enjoying a glass of rosé just like that at this moment. Nice. I need to get on that. <laughs> get on that. Amy Atwood, <laughs> it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. We're going to take a break here on the morning after. We're going to come back with Ross Cobb of Cobb Wines in Sonoma County. This is the morning after on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will, too. And I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. And we're back here on the morning after with winemaker Ross Cobb from a land far, far away. No, I'm just kidding. It's the Sonoma Coast of California. Welcome to the morning after, Ross. Thanks for having me. He is the uh, the winemaker for Cobb Wines as well as Hirsch Vineyards. And you grew up in Northern California, correct? That's correct. Born and raised in Marin and Sonoma. So what do you remember of, of wine culture in Sonoma when you were growing up? I mean, I'm sure you weren't drinking until you were well of age, but... <laughs> well, ex- exactly. So I started making wine with my dad, actually beer with my father when I was eight or nine, and he's a pretty good home brewer. And so uh, we used to take uh, actually grape juice in Saudi Arabia, where we lived for like two years. My dad's a, a marine biologist. Oh, wow. And we took uh, take Swiss grape juice and make it into wine, uh, illegally, of course. And uh, and then we uh, made a little home brew and then uh, moved to... Yeah, back to California and uh, made a little bit of wine. But Zinfandel, Pinot Noir, kind of were the grapes we worked with. We kind of take a little batch, make a little wine. But we were like, you know, cheap wine, table wine family. Never, ha- I never saw a bottle of Burgundy on our table growing up. What do you, I mean, what do you remember just about, the, like, the culture of the area? Was was there a big buzz about Sonoma Coast? Was there, I mean, what was what was going on? Well, the, the, there were only a, a handful of people on the Sonoma Coast make, growing grapes, and uh, so there wasn't much of a buzz. It was, it was pretty vacant, you know, landscape out there on the coast. Uh, but there were, um, most of the wine was in kind of the Carneros, you know, um, uh, Glen Ellen, Napa, Sonoma, you know, town of Sonoma, kind of the eastern parts of Sonoma County. The western part of Sonoma County had a lot of wineries, you know, Martinelli and then, you know, Dry Creek, Alexander Valley. But the Sonoma Coast was this kind of outer lands where no one really lived, no one really uh, made wine, but some grapes were grown and brought back in. So some of the first grape growers were in the kind of Russian River Sonoma Coast, you know, like an Iron Horse sparkling wine and came in, you know, later and, and uh, in the Green Valley area. And then we had Martinelli Vineyards. So most of it was kind of a crossover of Russian River Sonoma Coast um, at that time. So 
what prompted your family? So you not only make wine, but this is pretty rare in California. You actually also own a vineyard and you planted that vineyard. Your family planted that vineyard, the Coastlands Vineyard. Uh, what prompted you guys to, to do that? Well, my, my father back in the mid seventies, he was going to Berkeley and as a side, just project, uh, wasn't related to his marine biology, um, undergrad. He, decided to write a paper on the history of Pinot Noir on the Sonoma coast and which areas the like history it. was how long well, point. or no the, the future of <laughs> the California future Pinot Noir it. sorry the future of California Pinot Noir would be on these kind of coastal ridges as a marine biologist he kind of saw that fog influence from like the Santa Cruz mountains up to Mendocino Humboldt and there weren't that many vineyards at the time so he thought having been to Burgundy a couple times in between business trips he would taste and got inspired and he wrote a paper and then many, you know, 10, 10 years later, it sounds like many years when you're 10, but he, when he was, when I was 18, we bought a bare piece of property right above Bodega Bay. And his idea was plant a Pinot Noir vineyard that would really fall into that kind of cool climate Pinot Noir that he thought would be successful. And at the time, everyone thought it's too cold, it's too foggy. And uh, there weren't that, uh, there was David Hirsch at the time, who, you know, I help make wines with now, and uh, Suma, a ridge across from us, and Coastlands were kind of the first three on that kind of west edge of Sonoma Coast. And so my dad wanted to, to be part of, you know, to create something wonderful. And we created a little three acre block. Pinot Noir, 22 clones of Pinot on their own roots. And then I was 18, graduated from UC Santa Cruz and thought, let's let's take it to the next level. So that's kind of the history of our family. My father, David Cobb, and, and me and my late mother, Diane Cobb, I'm a kind of viticulturist, but kind of as a second career. So you're growing strictly Pinot Noir and you're working with strictly Pinot Noir. I know we spoke about this earlier that you studied um, agroecology, which to me sounds like aggressive ecology. <laughs> um, but what, I mean, what if, what about that degree is satisfied by, by growing Pinot Noir and specifically using single vineyards? Uh, well, agroecology, a program at UC Santa Cruz was, you know, a, a, you know, at the time, you know, a very progressive, um, organic and, an, you know, um, agroecology. You know, um, um, and so the idea was, you know, you know, uh, keeping the agriculture local, buying local, you know, all of the um, all of the. Um, Things that are important now in in the progressive food and wine industry were were important. So what we what I learned at UC Santa Cruz was small farms, small batches, you know, locally grown. And so what I've taken from that, ha- having gone to Burgundy now and traveled extensively on my own time, my own bill was just to, to learn about how how important and relevant these super small blocks of Pinot Noir are. Like you know half a hec- you know half a quarter hectare, like five rows, 10 rows, and how relevant they are in the cellar, how relevant they are in these, you know, really beautiful wines, uh, be them expensive or, you know, affordable, but just incredible wines. And I brought that back. So I look at a small half acre block of Pinot Noir grown in someone's little tuft in their backyard. And I say, we can work with this. Let's have some fun. Let's grow this sustainably. Let's grow this organic. Let's try to make, you know, make some beautiful, um, elegant Pinot Noirs from this teeny little spot on a map. Well, I mean, because specifically, you know, that vine grown in that soil at that slope, you know, with that exposure is going to taste different than any other in Sonoma. Do you, are you seeing more and more winemakers focusing on the single vineyard aspect versus uh, like 
you know, an estate bottled fruit. Right. The, 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 um, the small vineyards actually have become very popular in Sonoma County. And the only challenge has been to really, um, taste and smell a, a difference, uh, you know, between one vineyard and the next, in the next. And so I think a lot of people have been following that trend and trying to make single vineyards more as a marketing, you know, uh, idea, but, um, as as you know, William Selliam has done, and you know many you know Turley's done these some from you know rather large production down to very small. People have found the value in that from you know from sales. But for for us, finding a small vineyard and seeing the microclimate of that particular vineyard and how that can carry through year after year, the, the distinct aromas and characters of that vineyard can carry through. It's becoming really popular. You know, wine, wineries that I, you know, I adore, you know, Litteri and William Selliam and Flowers and, you know, uh, Hirsch wine, you know, all these small um, pays, are, you know, they have an estate, but they have a very small vineyard that they, they really do well with that small little uh, microclimate there. Um, you know, uh, Reese up in the Santa Cruz Mountains is doing this as well. And, you know, so yes, I'd say it's, a, it's becoming more and more popular um, for obvious reasons, because you can really see, as you can see in old birds, Burgundies and older, you know, plantings of Burgundies, you can see this beautiful kind of legacy from, you know, 20 years from the same vineyard site. And the only thing that's different is that microclimate, that change in that climate from that particular season, that particular vintage. What do you feel is the the number one streamlined characteristic of Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir? Well, the... Um, the the answer to that is it. That's a very broad question sure. be, because it's Sonoma Coast goes from you know Napa Carneros out to Petaluma Gap and then up north all the way to Naples, which is bordering um, the Mendocino border. Uh, so Sonoma Coast is more of a geographical broad stroke of something different from Sonoma County, and it's still one of the largest Appalachians in California, if not the largest Appalachian. So Sonoma Coast, I can break down. I won't. You know, we don't have enough time to talk about every single <laughs> microclimate. I'm sorry, I asked, <laughs> and so I won't. So the so Fort Ross Seaview area is is um, is very distinct from the 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 Freestone Occidental area where the Cobb wines are from, and Hirsch is up in the you know the area up in uh, the Fort Ross Seaview. You have Flowers, Fort Ross Vineyard, and Hirsch, um, amongst some others, Martinelli's, and some that buy fruit, Marcusan, and such that bring it back to their wineries inland. Um, the distinct aromas of Fort Ross would be kind of a rustic, you know, red fruits, you know, very nice acidity, um, very, you know, beautiful wines, um, a little more fruit. And then down into the the, Fort, uh, the um, Freestone Occidental, a little more underbrush, a little more like raspberry, red fruit, dark fruit, um, a little bit higher acidity sometimes. Uh, but for us, there's a little more elegance on the, on the West Sonoma Coast. Can you, uh, I feel like so many people elevate winemaking and think it's this just amazing thing and everybody would love to do it. Can you, can you walk us through like a, just a real day to day, like your, your day, you wake up, what do you do as a winemaker? I, uh, we we're basically glorified forklift operators, uh, <laughs> pallet jack operators. Uh, if you go to any big box, you know, um, super, you know, huge store, we basically move things around all day. But basically, in the behind the scenes, we are cleaning barrels, cleaning tanks. So my day to day, wake up, come up with a plan for the the week, try to do it in you know five days if we can. Long days, basically we 
clean the stainless steel tanks, clean the barrels after we've emptied them, clean the hoses. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> anything that starts with clean and then ends with let's you know taste this wine and smell it and you know dissect it and and really enjoy the moment but so much of it is just you know more of an industrial in the sense even in a very small small winery it's still you know cleaning and you know uh fixing equipment and you know repairing things and you know so we're basically you know we work very hard i always say it's like a small micro factory to a large factory depending on the size and we just you work you you know you 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 break your fingers. I mean, it's it's hard work, but you know we uh, we have fun because we're making wine and we can share it with friends. I mean, it's part of it. So you can actually enjoy it at the end of the day. When well, you can come to New York and see people's reactions, you can go all over the world and see people's reactions. It's it's a it's a beautiful beautiful uh, process from you know from growing the grapes all the way through to enjoying the wines in a restaurant. You know, deep down in the Lower East Side, and you're like, I make wine. Like, You've got a conversation for an hour if you want. You know, it's it's it opens a lot of doors and travel as well. Yeah, I have a friend who uh, worked at a winery for Harvest uh, in the Canary Islands, and I was like, oh man, that's awesome! You must have learned so much Spanish. She's like, I learned the words for hose and bucket. <laughs> so it kind of like goes <laughs> with, what, with what you're talking about. Um, so I guess walk me through your 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 winemaking process. I mean, I know that's going from the vineyard because you are working specifically, you know, and definitely with the Coastlands Vineyard. That is that is your influence. Walk me through that process um, of the vineyard specifically. I mean, I guess like you know your your winemaking practices. Got it. Yeah, uh, the the vineyard operation. You know, we basically grow uh, dry farmed. And we have 22 uh, colognes of Pinot Noir. We keep everything separate. We, we have small, small micro uh, lots of Pinot Noir that we ferment, vinify separately and, and, and um, distinctly between. So my winemaking is very, very hands-off and natural in the sense that we, we try to grow the grapes completely naturally, sustainably, you know, biodynamic or organic or not, uh, we try to do everything very hands off. So by the time it gets into the the winery, if we've done all the work for the you know, nine months prior um, for that particular vintage, or you know, twenty years prior for that particular vineyard, our job in the winery is can be focused on very very basic things which is cleaning <laughs> and moving things around um but the fermentation is natural um at at cob wines we do and and hirsch vineyards we do uh, n- native fermentation um no in- inputs from uh from nutrients and enzymes and whatever the whole list um th- that are available we don't use any of them and the idea is is to do about, about a five-day cold soak which basically means you're just kind of hands off keeping it under a little co2 um cold soak it's a very you know a very uh subtle um kind of um um extraction of very yeah like it, it helps to bring out the aromatics and and the color but not in, not intensely like in a in a slower slower process exactly there's no alcohol at that point it's just it's just the juice so it's very very soft subtle kind of um extraction like a you know kind of like a cold you know, cold pressed coffee or something is kind of a good analogy, but we do that for about five or six days and then the fermentation comes naturally. Um, we press off at dryness and I immediately transfer it, press and free run into barrel 
and it sits in barrel for uh, about nine months. We rack it dirty or clean, which means with leaves or without leaves, depending on our feeling and the aromatics. And then we age it for another nine, ten months in barrel. Not a lot of new oak, um, very tight grain French oak, uh, light toast, three-year air-dry wood. Very, very subtle. Um, in- integration of the oak is really important. And then we bottle it um, and uh, low sulfites. Um, the wines will age as you know as good as a vintage, as good as the vineyard is, and. And, uh, you know, uh, but it's pretty hand off. But like I hands off. But it, like I said, as long as we've done all the work in the vineyards and the vintage has been easy on us um, with the climate and such, and you know weather patterns, and we really can be uh, very natural. And um, you have to do less because the environment has already done it for you. Do you feel so? When you say dry farming, that means that no irrigation, correct? Mm-hmm. Does that does that mean is that something that that a lot that you're seeing happen a lot? at this moment or well well, if you want to talk about dry farming you really have to talk about the soil and Mm -hmm. and the the rain patterns of that particular vineyard so dry farming at my family vineyards we have 15 acres of pinot noir and five acres of that is in this really nice deep alluvial clay loam soil we haven't had to irrigate the vines in 25 years and that's you know ideal although it can be very vigorous at, at times so it's it's um you're the the slope that goes down the other ten acres of Coastlands Vineyard is rockier, well drained, you know, a little more exposure to the sun, and we have a drip system that we can actually use if it's a very arid summer. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a you know stamp dry farm farmer because that's it's really uh, it's kind of laughed at you know in California because we get no rain between March and April. In Burgundy, you'll get two inches of rain every month mm-hmm. all summer long so dry farmed in burgundy is different from dry farmed in most parts of the world so we try to do dry farm but we have an irrigation line there in case we need in case it's a you know desperately dry summer i mean yeah i, d- I definitely agree with with that because you i mean certain practices cannot work everywhere you 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 still are a farmer you still have to sell your fruit you still have to make your wine you still have to make your living Exactly. We we have it as more of an insurance than it is a you know a, a, pro, a you know, practice of mm-hmm. irrigation. Yeah. And so you've been making wine specifically for Cobb Wines since two thousand one, correct? Yes. So what do you know now that that you wish you had known then? Part of what I do now in winemaking for. All of the, I have a couple other projects. I work a little bit with the Banshee crew and Les Claypool from Primus. I help make his wine and um, a new project, Smith Story. Um, both all three of these with my friend Katie Wilson, who has a Larue Winery, small small label, you know, three hundred cases. But all of my projects are are basically a, a result of what I've learned over the years and what I have learned in the last fifteen years. Um, I wish I had known uh, the use of oak. I mean, I've, I've traveled to Burgundy, and which is you know great for any winemaker, great for anyone, any customer, wine person. But what I learned was oak can really, really be uh, overused, and everyone knows that oak can, is is kind of like this uh, excess in the in the wine industry, as is sugar and alcohol. 
Instead um, of just a vessel to hold wine. Exactly. And so the most important thing I learned, and I think it was in 04, 05, so I'd already made three or four vintages of Cobb, was I went to a winemaker in, uh, in uh, Cote de Bone. I won't name the name, but basically he had all old barrels, and they're all about 20, 30-year-old barrels. They looked, I mean, it was one of those classic cellars in Burgundy where, mm-hmm. you, know, this, you know, the mold and the spider webs and, you know, the whole, you know, in, uh, you know environmental ecosystem inside the cellar and I looked and I saw one shiny new barrel that just looked weird in his cellar and it's like so you know how much new oak do you use and he kind of laughed at me he's like you see I bought a new barrel and I said yeah so he says I buy a new barrel I buy a new barrel and he spoke good English Um, I, I buy a new barrel when the barrels that I have in the cellar become so old and so saturated with wine that they don't age the wine properly. They actually are so saturated that there's no air um, um, and, you know, por- porosity in the barrel. And But he's like, I don't like new barrels. And if I could get that new oak aroma out of the barrel, I, if I could, I would. And I came back to California and just like mind blown. I was like, we really don't know anything about winemaking because this is like, you know <laughs> these beautiful wines it was in Santane and and basically what I learned is barrels are used for for aging they're used for this porosity they're not used for this new oak aroma and I came back just completely blown away like we we have no idea what we're doing in, in in the new world in California and so I came back and oak is a vessel to hold the wine for that porosity but you don't want to smell the oak and mm-hmm. you don't want to taste the oak it's a very you want it to be subtle so I used a lot less new oak over the last you know ten years and uh, well seasoned very very subtle and also picking at very you know marginal yield. Um, uh, sugar levels you know 21 22 at the time you'd think it would be green and now i wouldn't want the wines any riper so we're learning kind of what people had learned in the 70s in california and kind of forgotten somehow we're kind of learning how beautiful and elegant and complex and how long the wines will age at these kind of lower sugar and high acidity levels Um, and so much is easier when you when you have the grapes grown in really nice cool climates of course but also um, picking at appropriate levels they age and like i was saying in the cellar everything's easier in the cellar the fermentations go smoother the, the wines age for 10 years and, and they're they're elegant they go well with food so those, those the, my early wines like oh one through oh four as much as much as i love them i made 100 or 200 cases very small production they're a little ripe and a little oaky for my style and you know for for my palate now do you do you feel like the uh, the wines that you're making now are being more well received than the ones you were making before? Well, it's interesting. It kind of depends on who. My first vintages were extremely well received. Everyone, you know, was you know extremely supportive, and I sold out every bottle, and, and they're beautiful. Um, my 01, 02, 03, 04, I still love them to this day, but I still dissect them and I think, hmm. And so it's it's a different palette. You know, the people appreciated that kind of little more bang back in, you know, back in that day. And I, I quickly evolved myself and my winemaking and my preference is what I like to drink after my travels and uh so now the wines that i make that i love there's there's a yeah there's there's a new uh kind of appreciation for those wines that i've been making you know more since like 06 is really when i started making wines i think in a little more elegant a little more uh subtle fashion like and there's a lot of california producers you know like packs at you know at wind gap and you know his wines before now he's making really balanced you know low low alcohol you know subtle wine so we're all trying to make wines that we love because then Mm -hmm. if you love your own wine 
in, chances are you'll find a, a group of people that, that appreciate them as well. Do you feel that, um, that you know, the way you're making wine now is more in an, in an old world style and people feel like, well, you're not being California if you're trying to make your wine like Burgundy? Right. Well, I'm trying to make wines like, 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 uh, I'm trying to make wines that I will enjoy drinking and that will go well with food and that will age well and that will be appreciated in Burgundy by my Burgundian you know, colleagues and, you know, and, uh, and friends. Uh, but I'm not trying to make a Burgundian. There's people in Burgundy that are trying to make a California wine, which mm-hmm. is, you know, very successful. I won't, you know, I won't name names, but, you know, it's, it goes both ways. As, as you know, you want to make wine that's just beautiful and it represents the place. You want, to, it, you want a wine that tastes like California. You want it to taste like the West Sonoma coast in Freestone Occidental. And that's, that's, you know, a Hirsch vineyard should take a, taste like Hirsch vineyards, you know, and, you know, it should taste like where it's from. And so uh, my, my goal is to make uh, in winemaking is to have the wine taste like where it's from. And that's the goal. And I wouldn't want to make a wine that tasted like Chambol. I'd be flattered if someone said it smelled like Chambol Mosini, but I, that's not my goal. My goal is to make a wine that tastes like Coastlands vineyard year after year after year and that use of you know less new oak you know less ripeness all of those things allow this the sight to to shine through i couldn't agree with you more do you have um kind of off the specifically winemaking topic but do you have any sort of like guilty pleasure alcoholic beverage outside of wine no it can definitely be wine <laughs> Guilty pleasure. That's a good question. Uh, I really, um, I'll tell you what I don't have a guilty pleasure for is for a lot of, uh, of uh, spirits that, that give me a bad hangover. So I'm pretty, I'm, I'm kind of boring in that sense. I mean, I really, really love, uh, I guess, the wines from Ribera del Duero, you know, Spanish wines. I'm kind of like, that's my fascination. That's where I wish I had spent more time gone. And those are the wines that, like, you know, I'll spend some decent money to get a wine that just blows my mind um wines of portugal right now kind of my but guilty pleasure oh man that's a tough one uh well i think it's hard when you're in the like the beverage profession to yeah. really have something just lousy that you love so much well it's pretty i mean it's pretty obvious the answer is like really really good burgundy from a good vintage from a good producer i mean that's my guilt i mean that's a pl- pleasure i'm not guilty about it it's that's, uh, that's it's just, just called pissing your money away, yeah. right? <laughs> that's part of my job. Exactly. Yeah, is, uh, drinking these beautiful wines. Oh, God. That's, that's a hard question. I, I'll have to pass on that one, yeah. No, that's okay. I mean, I, I, I have been known to drink a lot of Miller High Lifes, maybe some Coors Light. You know, I feel like oh. that's where I feel guilty. Okay. Where they're like, oh, you should like craft beer. And I'm like, you guys like beer, I, flavor I beer. <laughs> guilty because it's it's embarrassing. Okay. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think no, that. Ross, you think about it. You think about it. And, and I will tell everyone about it uh, the next time I, I record the show. Okay. <laughs> um, before, you, before you leave, let, tell me who, who you think is, is kind of a huge up and coming star in the California wine scene. I mean, of course, we all want to drink cob wines, of course. But well, we—I mean, the, I think what's really important for people, like if you're traveling anywhere in the world or, or studying any sort of, you know, you know, art form or you know, be it music or art, or um, we, you know, you have to focus on the people that that you love and that you appreciate. And so there's, um, you know, and 
I would say in California, which is a huge brush stroke. I mean, you can't, yes. um, you know, it's a, it's like talking about American wine industry. It's a very, very um, broad. But in in the area that that I live, and you know, my colleagues and friends are more in that you know Sonoma Coast, West Sonoma Coast. I'll focus on there because I'm really haven't tasted enough people from the you know the, from the Central Coast to really be a you know have a strong opinion. Although I love some of the, the wines from down there, I don't st- I haven't had enough of them. But in the West Sonoma Coast, the people that are making beautiful wines, it's it's we're in a group called West Sonoma Coast Vineyards, so we've all kind of found ourselves geographically similar and aromatically and you know uh, integrity, you know, pay winery, flowers winery, Hirsch winery, you know, uh, Cobb wines, Larue. Literai Winery, um, some of the unsung heroes of the area. That, um, you know, there's some beautiful wines um, in the Russian River Valley, uh, the, and I, I would say the um, uh, God, it's hard, but it's there. There's some some uh, the West Sonoma is, is just uh, it's very complex, and so that's where I focus um, on that kind of West area. You know, the Freestone area, Occidental area. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I, I, I'm with you and I'm, you know, pay I've, I've been really excited about and of course Cobb wines. And I, I'm really happy that, that you came to, to talk with us in the studio today. Can you tell me, uh, the website for your, for your wines? Sure. Cobb wines. That's a double B. With an S at the end. <laughs> C-O-B-B-W-I-N-E-S dot com. And you can see some funny pictures of me and my dad and the vineyard. And uh, we uh, we make about 130 to 200 cases per lot. And we make 1,400 cases total on a good year. So very, very small production. Um, and you can buy the wines. You can come out and visit me at the vineyard at Coastlands anytime. And uh, I'll show you around. And you can be lucky enough to purchase some at Terroir Tribeca, I'm proud to say. (laughs) Thank you, Jess. (laughs) Thank you, Ross. This is the morning after on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.